I can't believe it's already the winter special. I know, right? What even is time? All I know is that we're recording this on March 1384th, 2020. But seriously, I feel perpetually behind on X-Books. Between the baby finishing grad school and, you know, everything, it's been almost impossible to keep up. I know what you mean. Luckily, we can cheat, because we've got Kieran Gillen here, and presumably if anyone can get us up to date quickly, it's he. Howdy. Kieran, awesome, we need your help. Okay, so we know all the recent stuff has revolved around Mr. Sinister, but... What exactly did Sinister do? Um, which one? What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 435 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to... The 10th Annual Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men Giant Size Winter Special. That's right, we are almost at our 10th birthday, which means, because we did the first winter special before our first birthday, this is the 10th damn one of these we've done! We're so excited! We're so excited you're here with us! We're also very excited, before we jump in, to make a major announcement, or, or rather to issue an invitation. You, you listening to this right now, are invited to Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men's 10th birthday party. It's going to be April 13th in Portland, Oregon at Books with Pictures. There will be cake, there will be sunglasses, there will be some kind of live episode tomfoolery, and we really hope to see you there. Details to come. Yes, indeed. But before then, we have so much stuff for you. I mean, just look at the runtime on this episode. Also, sorry to our producer, Matt, for the runtime on this episode, but we have some really fun stuff. That's right. Those of you who've been with us for the previous nine of these pretty much know the routine. We're going to be talking about a comic, we're going to be interviewing a current X-Men creator, and then we're going to be presenting the Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence at Excellence. Before we dive into all of that, though, Jay, we are at the end of a year, the start of another. I think this episode technically comes out on New Year's Eve slash New Year's morning, so how have things been? How's your year been? Well, I mean, I think the thing that's been most emblematic of how my year's been is that we are recording this section of the winter special on the eve of my kid's first birthday. I can't believe it's already been one day shy of a year. You've been a parent for, like, a freaking year. Yeah, it's really ridiculous. Oh, it's, that's so cool. And I mean, I'm, listeners, I've had the chance to meet Jay's kid. They are so freaking rad, and I'm so freaking happy for you all. So yeah, I was I was gone um, this time last year. I, I pre-recorded the continuity comic section of the winter special, and then I was I was off for several months. And instead, you had um, the excellent, excellent Al Kennedy hosting. Al was so much fun to work with, and has such a delightful accent as well. We covered so much random stuff. We got to talk about some Marvel UK, some truly ridiculous Generation X, which that's just a thing for this era in general. But it was fun. And then you came back, and you and I got to dive back in. We've been working our way through the late 90s, which are a strange time with high highs and low lows, and I love talking about all of those things with you. 
This felt like a weirdly sort of contained year. And I think a big part of it is that we wrapped up two series that we've been talking about for the better part of the last decade. Yeah, Excalibur and X-Factor both ended, at least, you know, volume one of those comics did. And so now we're just covering X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, X-Force, and Generation X, in addition to various miniseries and one-shots and that sort of thing. And it's nice to have a lean, mean bit of coverage, which we're accomplishing largely by ignoring the solo books. Not that they're not lovely, but still... But it's also so strange. We've been covering tons and tons of ongoing comics for ages now. And those books have been such central parts of this podcast and kind of of our lives for all these years. It feels a little bit bittersweet to finally, you know, say goodbye to them. That's true. In a way, all of these comics we talk about do feel like friends. Weird, weird friends. That's the thing. We've been doing this for so long. Ten of these damn winter specials. This is just a part of the rhythm of life these days. And I suspect for some of the folks listening to this, that's at least to some extent the case as well. And with that, let's lean into the rhythm of the winter special and go to our comic for this episode. So every year for the winter special, we try to pick a comic that we are in some way especially excited about or have some special affection for. Sometimes it's the first issue of a run we're excited about. Sometimes it's a real weirdo story like Reign of Terra, if people remember that one. That was a time. That was a time. I love that issue. It was so strange. Uh, This time, we're doing a comic that I'm very excited to talk about because it is a long-shot comic. And long-time listeners, or long-shot listeners for that matter, uh, will know that he is one of my very favorite X characters, even though he's only kind of an X character. This is a comic that we'd both read before, and neither of us had liked all that much. And that coming back to, with all of the context we have now, and with all of the ways that long-shot has been written in the intervening years since we first read it, of which there have been many— both many ways Longshot's been written and many intervening years, have left us with really different perspectives and given us kind of a new lens on this that's allowed us to find some absolute gems and also some, I think, pretty fun reads on both the story and the character overarchingly that I'm really excited to dig into. Oh, 100%, yeah. I remember reading this years and years ago, discovering like, oh, there was a long shot one shot, that's a fun phrase, in 1998. Uh, I love long shot, I'll read it. And I'm like, wait, this isn't what I was expecting, and I was a bit disappointed. But yeah, just looking at it as its own comic, and also I think looking at it after so many years of reading comics more closely for the podcast, yeah. like, I-, I got so much more out of it. I don't know about you. Oh, likewise. I remember my my initial thought basically being, what the hell is this? This isn't long shot. This isn't yeah. This isn't standard long shot. My long shot. This isn't X Men. This is this is this whole other thing that just feels really. I don't know. It it wasn't what I anticipated. What I expected it to be, and I was judging it against my expectations at that point. Such an easy trap to fall into. I do that all the time. I totally hear you on that one. I think it also helps that going back into this, I've just been rereading Dematis's Iceman miniseries. Oh, Iceman, I remember that miniseries. That's the one where he dates and then falls in love with and then fights literally the concept of Oblivion. Who is also her own father, yes. So good, so good. Um, But yes, this issue is written by Jam Dematis, and in fact, let's just do the whole credits for the long shot one shot called Fools. Right, as you mentioned, it's written by Jam Dematis, uh, pencils by Michael Zuli, inks by Al Williamson, colors by Kevin Somers, and letters by Bill Oakley. 
So we talked a bit about J.M. DeMattis. He's a longtime Marvel writer. Uh, like you said, Jay, he did the Iceman miniseries. But I also want to talk about Michael Zuli. So Michael Zuli is an artist that I most know from doing the last big arc of The Sandman. Likewise. Yeah. And he's got this... I'm not going to say it's exactly a realistic style. I mean, it's mostly realistic. Mainly, it's very detailed. It's detailed, but very dreamlike. That's a good way of putting it. So as you might imagine, that fit the Sandman pretty well. Um, But it fits this really well, too, because there's just this texture to everything that makes it it feel almost like you can touch it, but it's still got that surreal quality. And all of that together just feels like Longshot. It's a different version of Longshot, though. I remember first being very struck by the cover. I had a JPEG of the cover, like, way before I read the comic, uh, back when we were in college. I remember um, that. That yeah, it was Yeah, the cover was what got me interested in it in the first place. I mean, obviously, it was Longshot, but it was Longshot in this style that I associated very, very, very much with late 90s Vertigo. Totally, yeah. So it's Longshot a little bit different than we're used to. Uh, it's still clearly, clearly a Longshot, long blonde hair. Uh, I with energy coming out of it, but he's in a makeshift version of his costume, like a black jacket that's a little too small and black pants that are a little too big and a white t-shirt with an uneven yellow 12-ish pointed star on it. Like it's, it's not symmetrical. It's not that usual, like tight black leather pouchy, almost armored uniform that he wears. There's no bandolier. It's just sort of like a casual clothing cosplay equivalent of Longshot's costume. And he's facing off against this big red amphibious centaur thing, I guess. I don't even know how you would describe it. I mean, we'll try because that's a character in the story. It's a thingy. It's a thingy. It is a thingy, quite literally. Yeah, like that is that is what it is called and what it is labeled with in the story. And that's about as close as we can come to taxonomy. <laughs> Pretty much. But... Yeah, there's this fairy tale feel from the whole damn thing that starts with the cover, and holy crap, it continues onto the first page. You turn, you open the book, and it just blows your mind with dreamlike glory. Very, very Sandman feeling. Because Longshot is standing on the head of this this huge white statue of a man who has like giant roses for hair and a curtained like bedroom window in his chest, looking across this green sky filled with eyeball hot air balloons. It's a bit Fantastic Planet, isn't it? It is a bit Fantastic Planet. Yeah, that old animated French movie that was very strange and actually very good. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the Mojo verse. We're told that by the narration, and the narration we should say is very different from the narration you usually see in superhero comics. So this is third person narration. It's not not first person narration from a character's point of view. We've got an omniscient third person narrator who's who's telling the story in very much the tone of a fairy tale, to the point that it starts with Once Upon a Time. In fact, Jay, you want to take it from there? Once upon a time, in a faraway place called the Mojoverse, a magical land of impossibilities and miracles, hazards, enigmas, and absurdities, there lived a man, not a man as we know it, but a man nonetheless, a great hero, actually, called Longshot. And he was wandering the far reaches of this strange realm, searching for something, The only problem was, he didn't know what. It's totally a storybook, and it's totally a storybook told in that almost verbal style that storybooks often are, which I love. So, I'm gonna come back to this, because I think we should discuss it at exhaustive and possibly excessive length. But the structure of this got me thinking about the idea of Longshot 
as a folk hero and specifically about developing or extrapolating meta narrative around the inconsistencies in Longshot's portrayal as resulting from him being a folkloric figure. Like, imagine if the Mojoverse has Longshot tales the way that our world has Jack tales. Oh, like Jack and the Beanstalk, etc. It makes sense that, you know, you get him starting from, from sort of a blank place so many times. It makes sense that his characterization is so uneven across those. Like, Longshot exists within the Mojoverse to be an inspirational figure. Like, he was created literally not to successfully revolt, but to inspire the spirit of revolution. He exists literally to be folklore. Yeah. And in fact, I feel like we should talk a little bit about just who Longshot is. We don't need to go into great continuity detail, because like you said, that's not the point. But it's an interesting way to look at this book by comparing it to what how Longshot's been portrayed in the past. So Longshot is, among other things, patient zero for pouches. Everyone blames them on Liefeld. It was Art Adams. That's right. Art Adams was annoyed that superheroes kept pulling out all these gadgets but had nowhere to keep them. Thus, Longshot had pouches. And thus, everyone else eventually had pouches in the 90s. So Longshot debuted in a miniseries drawn by Adams and written by Annie Nascenti. It was a weird, weird little six-issue miniseries um, set within the Marvel Universe, but that intersected very, very little, if at all, with you know, existing Marvel continuity. And it not just introduced us to Longshot, it also introduced us to the Mojoverse and its ruler Mojo. You know, big yellow guy, sort of his lower body is a chair with robot spider legs. Got the clockwork orange eyes. Clockwork orange eyes, yeah. And the Mojoverse is this sort of, well, that's the thing, it's a lot of things. It's usually portrayed as this media, specifically television, obsessed dimension, where Mojo forces everyone into these sort of TV shows that he broadcasts to try to get the best ratings. Uh, that's certainly how we saw it in the 90s X-Men cartoon. And in this, Longshot is often forced into those. But the Mojoverse is also this burned-out wasteland of a place where people are rebelling against the rule of Mojo and the Spineless Ones. And like you said, Jay, Longshot was created by a dude to basically be this inspirational figure with this luck power who could lead and inspire a revolution against the Spineless Ones. So Longshot is one of those characters whose powers mesh very, very tightly with his personality and with, with his story. Specifically, he has luck powers, but that luck is fueled by the purity of his intentions. And even more specifically, sometimes by his perception of the purity of his intentions. But I love that. That is why Longshot's one of my favorite characters, because when it comes down to it, Longshot is a character who can make the world work out okay just by caring real hard about it, which is such a beautiful, appealing, impossible concept. And he's a character who is is literally depowered by the act of questioning his own motives. Right, exactly. And we've seen that before. I mean, like Gladiator and the Imperial Guard, for instance, is that way. But with Longshot, he's just so much less you know, arrogant about it. Like, not really at all, in fact. He's just a really nice person. So as for why Longshot is in an X-Men podcast, well, Mojo, of course, has become a big X-Men villain. Longshot himself was on the X-Men for a while in the 80s, and he's been on various X-teams here and there. This is not an X-Men story. We're covering it anyway because we like it. That's right. 
Well, and because it's got it's got at least an offhand mention of a character who's probably an X-Man. That is a good point, because Longshot is married to former and now current and I think currently dead, maybe. Anyway, X-Man, Dazzler. And the narration tells us in this dream world that he had left his village looking for this unknown thing and had left his wife, Dazzler, who packed him a well, he doesn't, bag he doesn't lunch. Spec- it doesn't specify that Dazzler is his wife in this, but it just mentions that he's left his wife and she's the only one we know of. Well, yes. Anyway, she's an X-Man. Um, but in this description, it also says that Longshot heads to the plains of nothing, the mountains of practically nowhere, unpleasant valley, the odd and uncharted regions. Again, this is a very different Mojoverse than that TV dimension we've seen before. Unpleasant Valley reminds me very much of the actual real place in Oregon, uh, Dismal Niche. Good old Dismal Niche. I saw a travel poster for it once. I mean, I think you've seen it too. Isn't that yeah, house we stayed yeah. at that one time? Uh, that just looks so goddamn dreary. It's like a gray, rainy beach. It looks just cold and clammy. You know, they named it that for a reason. I need to actually go there someday. See if it really is all that dismal or that much of a niche, whatever a niche is. Anyway, in the distance, there are these, like, four-armed people with eyeballs for heads sticking out of the ground, holding up giant fruits, because, again, it's just weird, dreamlike stuff. And Longshot notices, as he looks across the plains, question mark, that on top of one of those fruits, there's this giant monster, that's right, the thingy, that's thingy with two E's at the end, from the cover, is menacing a little gnome dude with a topknot and a giant mustache whose name is Nut with two T's. Longshot doesn't know this initially. He will later learn that the little gnome dude's name is Nut. Right, all he knows right now is that there's a monster that's clearly menacing something much smaller than that monster. So let's talk about the monster first, because... Man, it's cool. Oh, it's really cool. Michael Zuli is is sometimes a wildlife illustrator when not drawing comics, and boy, does he bring that skill set here. This is some truly wild wildlife, though. So, okay, we tried briefly to describe the thingy on the cover, but it's like if a centaur was, instead of being based on a human and a horse, it was, like, based on a bright red catfish and a sort of human, and it's got, like, this xenomorph-esque second inside mouth in its mouth with fangs and tentacles and crap it's super scary looking and super cool looking it's it's very neat our visual companion is just going to be pictures of this thing just the thingy over and over and over and also the cover uh the thing is on the cover the fight is, well that's true that's true i says long shot though so they fight but just like everything else in this book the fight is not a standard superhero scene a big part of what happens is that the thingy laughs maniacally in Longshot's direction, and like the ha-ha-ha of its laughter, those letters turn into these very physical projectiles that like Longshot has to dodge and parkour off of to get closer to the thingy itself. How very Yellow Submarine of it. It is very Yellow Submarine, that's true. Uh, that, that's a good thing, I feel good about that. And so Longshot at the end figures, okay, well, uh, my normal attacks aren't working, Uh, my weapons are useless against it, like the Prince of Space, and so he just jumps into the thingy's mouth, since the thingy has already eaten the little gnome dude nut, figuring, hey, things tend to work out for Longshot, he'll be fine, and he'll somehow win because he's the good guy and the thingy's the bad guy. And so strong is his purity of purpose that the mere act of doing this causes the thingy to explode. Yes. Unfortunately... It also causes Longshot to uh, seemingly die and, like, fall into a black hole along with some of the thingy's guts. And what he finds is 
something, maybe a, a gateway to heaven. It's like this giant golden whirlwind surrounded by these little tiny angels and like floating red doors going back and forth around it like a, like a river. And the narration just keeps calling it different things, a tower of fairy dust, an incandescent gyre, which is a great collection of syllables right there. He sees this as a place that he's being invited to, that he can go into, and he wants to go, and he intends to go, and he thinks, you know, even leaving his family is okay, they'll join him there eventually. But Longshot realizes he's not innocent enough to go into heaven. And innocence has always been a big thing for Longshot. That's always been thematically linked to that purity of intention. Uh, That's a word that gets thrown around a lot with this dude. And it's important to him. And he thinks part of that may be because of the dying thingy corrupting him by proximity. But part of it is also just having lived more of his life. Having had experience, the narration tells us. All at once, Longshot understood that, although his years of journeying and wild adventures had brought him the wisdom of experience, he'd sacrificed his innocence in the process. And that, he intuited, is the something I've been searching for. My innocence! And now, he knows where he can't go, and he knows what he's looking for, and the incandescent gyre sort of gently shoves him in the direction of one of those red doors— and into that cornfield from the cover. And I don't know what it is about this cornfield, but I want to go to there. It just looks so pleasant. It's like all golden and soft, and the sun's out. It just looks so idyllic. That's how they get you. I remember that old uh, PlayStation game Medieval where you play the skeleton dude, Daniel Fortescue. Like, if you went into the corn in the corn maze, um, you would just die. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's Terrible. What that's what the Midwest is like in general. Oh, fucking Midwest. So this is the cornfield from the cover, and like the cover, Longshot is dressed a little differently. He's in that makeshift version of his outfit. Everything feels very, I'm not going to say mundane, because everything is a little storybook elevated, but it's not a superhero book at all at this point. Well, it's not a superhero book, and it's not a fantasy anymore in the same sense either. Specifically, it's an inversion of the standard fairy tale structure. Longshot has made a heroic choice. And he has, in fact, by a whirlwind, been sucked up from his fantasy world and deposited in Kansas, and specifically outside of Baum, Kansas, um, L. Frank Baum being the author of the Oz books. Yeah, yeah, there are so many Wizard of Oz references in this, and others as well, but largely Wizard of Oz, and you're totally right. It's a reversal. Longshot is such a fantastical character that him being pushed into the unknown is being pushed into what we would consider very, very, almost painfully normal. Well, and this is also the world where experience largely overwrote his his innocence. Yeah, yeah, when he was on the X-Men for a long time, his various adventures in his own miniseries, so it makes sense. He's not alone, though, because Nut, that little gnome guy who talks in rhymes all the time, maybe that's why the thing he was trying to kill Nut, because he doesn't like rhymes, he was just annoyed. Uh, Nut is with Longshot, he was in Longshot's pocket, and as they wander off, it turns out the thingy in some way also made it through. But not the thingy as we know it. It's a little more monstrous this time, like there are eyeballs growing out of its very long tongue, for instance. It's great. 
this is not without precedent, because back in the Longshot miniseries, there was a character named Gognamagog, although that naming is uh, somewhat disputed, which is far too long of a story to go into. But anyway, Gognamagog was a bounty hunter, monstery guy who came from the Mojoverse to look for Longshot. He started out all cute, Longshot called him Pup, and he was like being all nice to Longshot to get in his trust. But the longer he was on Earth, the longer he was around like Longshot's luck magic effects the more monstrous he became and that's exactly what we're seeing happen to the thingy here Longshot is maybe learning and growing as we'll see on earth but this type of corruption just becomes more and more corrupt exposed to Longshot's presence and earth itself well and the thingy specifically devours innocence yeah that's why it was trying to eat nut that's why uh Longshot's overdose of innocence or something along those lines made the thingy explode. And that's what it's going to seek out now that it's on Earth. But Longshot doesn't know any of this. He's just hanging out with his little rhyming pocket friend, and he heads into town. He heads into Baum, which is described as a town that's proud of being a throwback to a simpler time that might not have ever truly existed, which I find very charming. That's such a good description. That's such a telling description. Oh, I know, right? Like, I think we've probably both been to towns like that at various points. Oh, yeah. And he asks the locals for help, but mostly they just make fun of his long hair and what they refer to as a Muppet on his shoulder, and the fact that he uh, only knows where New York is, so he asks where it is because he's going to start walking there. You noticed who they're based on, right? Uh, you know, I didn't until you mentioned it to me, but uh, please do the honors. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, they call not a Muppet, specifically their Statler and Waldorf. Oh, man. I, I love Statler and Waldorf. You know, that should be fresher in my mind after that X-Factor gag we did that one time. Yeah, well, I feel like if I were really in the spirit of this, I would come up with some Statler and Waldorf-y comeback to that, but I'm very tired. And Longshot is just such an earnest series. I feel like we shouldn't be too sarcastic at each other. Longshot would be sad. So... Off he goes, as uh, Statler and Waldorf, but not quite, direct him in the vague direction of New York, which, uh, if you don't live in America, we will say is very, very far from Kansas. And Longshot, when he's on Earth, because of his innocence, because of his origins, continues to operate kind of by folklore and by fairy tale rules. So the idea of, and then he walked to New York, makes perfect sense to him. Like, he does, partly because he doesn't have a sense of the actual distance, but partly because that's the kind of thing he ends up doing. 100%, yeah. And similarly, he and Nut just swing by a house they passed by because they're hungry, and that's kind of what you do in stories. This house is occupied by only a little girl named Betty, and she is there home alone because her parents are away taking care of her sister, who is having a baby, and Betty has, has convinced them that she is old enough to stay home alone, and she's she welcomes Longshot in. She welcomes him specifically because her grandma said never to turn down a beggar because they could be Jesus. Or Odin. I, I don't know if grandma actually mentioned that, but it seems more likely in the Marvel Universe, doesn't it? I'm just saying, like, a, a shocking number of people have met Norse gods in the Marvel Universe. Maybe not in Baum, Kansas, though. And she, she gives Daniel Longshot and Nut a lot of cupcakes. And before they leave, Longshot touches her. And we didn't mention when we were talking about Longshot's powers that one of them is psychometry. Psychometry is a type of psychic power where when you touch an object or a person or whatever, you get a little bit of its history or perhaps its psychic resonance. Longshot has done this before. Um, at one point during the Outback era of the X-Men, the X-Men stumbled upon a bunch of valuables that were stolen by the bad guys that they took 
their new base from. And so on Christmas, they went around the world through teleportation portals uh, to give all the belongings back to the people they were stolen from. And it's very, very sweet. Because they were sad and wanted to go home. The objects, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Longshot just explained it that way. And the X-Men were like, well, you know, you're a weirdo, Longshot, but okay, okay, you have a good heart and that would make people happy. But you're a weirdo. But you're our weirdo. Yes. Uh, a very attractive weirdo as well. Rogue and Dazzler both had giant crushes on him. Uh, that worked out better for Dazzler. But, you know, honestly, it worked out better for Rogue. She and Gambit are great together these days. So when Longshot puts his hand on Betty's shoulder, he specifically gets a vision of, of Betty's brother Garrett, who died when he was little, and whom he sees as, as watching over Betty. And Longshot says, Garrett loves you, and he's happy where he is, and he wants you to be happy. And she just cries with joy. And this is such a Longshot thing to do. And he even sort of thinks about it in his in his captions about whether this is real or whether just her innocent belief is creating this sort of apparition of her brother. And he decides that, you know, it doesn't really matter because she's happy. That's the important part. Alas, that will not last because Longshot basically leaves a breadcrumb trail of innocence wherever he goes, and we know who is attracted to innocence, and specifically who devours innocence, and that is the thingy. And it uh, goes poorly. We find out how when a couple of cops wake Longshot up in the field in which he's been sleeping, because they found Betty almost entirely unresponsive in her home, just saying the name Longshot over and over. And Statler and Waldorf uh, have enough room in their brains for things other than sarcasm to remember that this weird hippie-looking dude called himself Longshot. So uh, the cops are pretty sure it's his fault what happened to Betty. He's able to get away from them via his luck. You know, guns misfire. Uh, he's able, He you know, He's a phenomenal acrobat in any case, and he escapes. And he's about to go back to the house to try to find Betty and check on her. But uh, Garrett's ghost, her brother's ghost, stops him. And says the cops are watching that house. And anyway, Betty's not there. She was taken to a sanitarium in the nearby town of Barry. Hey, wait a minute. Barry? B-A-R-R-I-E? Yeah, we've got another author that has kids going from a regular world to a fantasy world, that being Jam Barry of Peter Pan. Yep. So Longshot asks, is Garrett real or like a thought projection that came alive? What's what's going on here? I mean, he's cool either way, but he's curious. And Garrett just says, dude, don't worry about it. Doesn't matter. Just repeat to yourself, as we often quote, it's just a fable about Longshot. We should really just relax. Garrett's point here, and sort of the theme that's coming from it, is that for Longshot, questioning his powers becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, you'd mentioned, Jay, that doubt is something he's really vulnerable to, and sure enough, that's, you know, what sent him into another world away from his goal at the beginning of the issue. So, here we, we leave Longshot briefly to visit a woman named B. Lillian, and... As we all know, when a character gets a full name and a backstory in a comic book and they don't look about to intersect with the main characters, that's never a really good sign for them. Oh, oh no, it is not. Uh, we learned that she grew up here. She's been a widow for decades. She prides herself on picking out flawed beans from the pot of beans while cooking about that kind of precision. And 
while she's doing exactly that, her husband shows up, but like way younger than when he died and he's got flowers. And then she's suddenly young and they kiss and it's so goddamn beautiful with Zuli's art. And the narration tells us why she's a target for, you guessed it, the thingy in disguise. Did she doubt this miracle? No. She accepted it. Embraced it. Because B. Lillian had always been a believer, an impassioned advocate for faith and dreams and open hearts. Which goes about as well for her as you might expect. The thingy is just tracking Longshot every step of the way, kind of like how Rainfire was tracking X-Force for a while, come to think of it. But, uh, you know, more about devouring innocence rather than setting things on fire. Longshot himself is headed toward the sanitarium in Barry. And he realizes, you know, he's lost his innocence, yeah, but he's also lost faith in himself. His conversation with Garrett made him realize that. He blames himself for what happened to Betty. He thinks it's because of him that his intentions have gone afoul. They led the thingy to this innocent little girl. If he had just never showed up, she might be okay. And the next place he is leading the thingy by default is the sanitarium in Barry. Um, and he, he heads inside, he breaks in, and inside he meets a large um, mustachioed patient named Wilson who is charming and trusts Longshot and, and tells him immediately where, where Betty is. Wilson won't come with Longshot, though, because he's a terrible coward. You know, like the cowardly lion, because there's a lot of Oz parallels. But I love Longshot's reply to Wilson about that. Terrible? I doubt that. Why, Wilson, I bet my life that you're a wonderful coward. A splendid coward. An absolutely majestic coward. And off they go to find Betty, who indeed is blank-faced and hollow-eyed. And Longshot can't get anything from her, but he does touch her doll and read its past. He sees what happened. He sees what happened with the thingy coming to her. For the thingy's part, the thingy is continuing to track Longshot and is more monstery than ever. Like, it's covered in spikes and eyes and is, like, less and less of a specific animal-slash-person shape and more just kind of an amorphous creature. And when cops confront it, it just, like, opens up its torso into a big amorphous mouth and just devours them, which leaves their screaming faces on its flank. And then it glumps on its way, you know, like the Jabberwock does. I, I gotta say, I also got a bit of a Wuggly Ump vibe from it. The Wuggly Ump! I haven't thought about the Wuggly Ump in a long time. Do you want to tell the listeners about the Wuggly Ump, Jay? So the Wuggly Ump is, is a creation of, of none other than, than the wonderful and, and whimsical Edward Gorey. And it's, it's, um, the, it's a poem that, that goes between kids, you know, living a very normal life and being in their, their house and the Wuggly Ump approaching... And uh, the, the last bit of it is uh, sing glogalimp, sing glogalump from deep inside the Wugglyump. Yup, exactly. It eats them. Just like the thingy eats everybody. Longshot remains oblivious, though. He picks Betty up. He's going to take her out of this place. He's going to try to help her. He figures in here, nobody can really be helped. And he especially figures that that's the case when he's confronted by Dr. Joshua Doctor, who runs it, and Dr. Doctor's orderlies. I like that Longshot's take is not just black and white about this person. He wasn't a bad man. Longshot could feel that at once. 
But he was the kind of person whose good intentions were so misguided that shattered psyches and cremated spirits were the inevitable result. I feel like Longshot evaluates people the way that a Studio Ghibli movie does. Nobody's really quite exactly a bad guy. Hmm, I like that. As he escapes, Longshot meets other patients in the sanitarium, and um, we only get sort of brief glimpses into these characters and uh, Wilson's introductions to them. There's Diane, who danced naked on a courthouse lawn at some point, Tallulah, an aging movie star, Mikey, who doesn't speak, that's all we really learn about Mikey. We've got Mr. Berkowitz, a white guy who's convinced he's descended from Geronimo and uh, wears a headband with a feather, and Denise, who um, basically looks like Freddie Mercury in the I Wanna Break Free video. Uh, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, mustache, uh, pretty dress. Mustache, cocktail dress, um, very, you know... F- flipped Bob. And I want to talk about Denise for a little bit because I think Denise is a fairly good example of what Longshot, you know, in the narration described above, which is is the distance between good intentions and their outcome. Like we mentioned, this comic came out in 1998. Yeah, and I don't know to what extent Denise is a product of 1998. I feel like better portrayals were extant and possible at that point. But there's, like, yeah, I mean, Denise feels like every kind of ugly man in a dress stereotype. And that's frustrating in an otherwise really lovely comic. On the other hand, one of the things that's kind of emphasized about this group of people is that they are all innocents, and that there is nothing per se wrong with them, that they are they're living their lives as they believe them to be lived. There, there's going to be more about this later. And so we can look at it with an even more modern lens and see the areas in their representation that are problematic, but also the potential for a more sophisticated representation of someone who is joyously gender nonconforming. And I gotta say, this group to me has it's it's not quite there, but this story in general actually has has a bit of a Morrison Doom Patrol feel to it. I can totally see that. Just a group of people who are very much people and who are just a different than your average person as was perceived by the world around them, and they have some trouble with the world because of that. Well, and the regular world as a fairy tale setting. Yeah, that's a good point as well. So Longshot, you know, immediately befriends all of these people because that's what he does. And he gets just these waves of trust and hope from the patients of this place. And that inspiration, knowing that other people believe in him, even when he doesn't believe in himself, insert Gurren reference here, I guess, enables him to get that luck back. And when the orderlies come to try to capture all of them, to put them all back in their rooms, Betty especially, he's able to fight them off. And he does mention that nobody's permanently injured by this, but Zuli really draws some impact here. I'm thinking of that whole thing where Daredevil doesn't kill people. Like, yeah, I mean, not technically, but it's not that bad. And after he breaks out, he's no longer alone. The patients want to leave the asylum, too. They want to come with him and come with Betty and see what the outside world is like. 
And the narration here is so good. He knew just by looking at them that they saw him as some kind of harlequin messiah, a holy fool come to save them from a far too sober world. He wanted no part of that role. So why then did he finally nod his head and urge them to follow? Perhaps because he sensed in their pure and perfect oddity the seeds of his own salvation. Six messiahs for the price of one, he thought. You know, that may be the best summation of Longshot I've read before. I mean, the Harlequin Messiah part in particular, because what a glorious little phrase. But yeah, that he inspires everyone around him, and they in turn inspire him, and that leads all of them to more greatness than they could ever have achieved otherwise. And that's really something we've seen in Longshot since his inception. It's not just purity of purpose that defines him, but his sense of wonder. Yeah, and his ability to share that with other people and to get it from other people as well. And to just to, to find the mundane in our world remarkable because it's not his world, but also because he really finds and hones in on the remarkable in everyone he, he encounters. Yeah, talk about seeing the best in people as like half a mutant power. Now, what he's struggling with, though is that that still doesn't give him a vehicle to fix what's happened to Betty. Right. I mean, she's been severely traumatized, but she's also kind of had her innocence, like, literally devoured by the thingy. And as much hope as he's gotten from his new friends, as much as they believe in him, he's furious with himself, and also furious at the world for expecting him to be able to save this girl. He can't. Like, luck can't just undo that kind of damage. Well, luck on its own can't. Longshot, as you may recall, had an encounter earlier in this story with something more powerful and more pure than luck, and that is the energy of of that, what was described as an incandescent gyre, that, that swirling vortex that was the gateway to heaven. And it has erased itself from his memory, but it lingers a little bit as, as a memory, and thus some of its essence lingers in him as well. And that is able to manifest and heal Betty. That or something like it. Whatever the source of the miracle, it carried with it the realization that innocence alone was not enough. It was only when a man's innocence was tested by experience, purged and strengthened by the struggles and sufferings of the world, that it attained its full value. And there's part of our thesis statement. There's why this story and its point are about long shot. And it's kind of overt, maybe a little didactic almost, but I think most importantly, and the reason why this works for me is it's earnest. Longshot is a character who is earnest. Longshot is all about that pure way of looking at the world where even if you know stuff is complicated, like that doesn't make it less pure. And here we have the idea of experience not being something that destroys innocence, but being something that enhances it. That tempers it. Exactly, exactly that. If you just have innocence, you can't really do much with it, but with experience, you can. And again, this is sort of a facile explanation, but for a long shot story, especially a long shot story that's a straight up fable, I'm not mad at all about that. I'm kind of on the fence about whether it's really satisfying, but it does feel true to the the fairy tale fable essence of the story. And I also appreciate that this story has to be about long shot. 
Sometimes you'll have stories where the protagonist is just sort of thrown in there because that's a character people like, and that's fine. Those can be good stories. But this is so specifically a long shot story. The long shot tale. Yep. However, suddenly, cops! Cops everywhere! Corrupt, creepy, evil cops! They just sort of split out of the body of the thingy. You get the impression they're just sort of made of pure thingy stuff. It's super creepy. But not all of them are quite like that. Some of these cops still remember what it's like to be human and uh, object rather strenuously to the idea of shooting a bunch of people who are hiding in a barn in cold blood. So the thingy re-exerts its control and merges all of the cops, protesting and otherwise, into a giant version of itself, but even more monstrous. It's just got mouths everywhere full of teeth and tongues. It's got a mouth in its nose. It's got a big mouth in its torso. It's so terrifying looking. At this point, it feels very Guy Davis. Oh, 100%. Uh, Listeners, if you're not familiar, uh, did a lot of art on BPRD back in the day, does the monster design for a lot of Guillermo del Toro's movies. Uh, Pacific Rim is very Guy Davis. I believe he did a lot of the monster design for the last Diablo game, too. Oh, I totally believe that. That's awesome. So, it's a standoff. It's this almost invincibly powerful monster who's absorbed so much innocence and is just kind of a, a god monster at this point. Well, demon monster. And Longshot has tried to send his companions away to safety, but they won't leave him. Yeah, this guy is their friend. And they don't know if they can help, but they know that they're all stronger together. And they all hold hands. And in a scene that would make the end of Judgment War proud, they just send a wave of pure emotion, of pure shared emotion at the thingy. A package wrapped in stardust of hopes and dreams and wishes on stars, heartfelt prayers and heartfelt love. See what we mean about the really earnest thing? That. And they basically, by by responding to the thingy with all of this, with love, with hope, they transform it, and suddenly it's this golden six-armed elfin angel who became the thingy, became corrupted into the thingy after eons of tears and suffering. Um, and it became overwhelmed with corruption and, and sought to refind its innocence. And the only way it could think to was to devour it. Or looked at a different way, it became so fixated on its own innocence that it felt like any kind of difference, any kind of experience, any kind of sorrow it experienced lessened its identity. Thus, it sought to just find innocence and innocence and innocence to deny anything that was not innocence. The same thing Longshot was kind of doing at the beginning of the story before he had his realization. Because that's the thing. Experience tempers innocence, but what the story is really starting to get at is that what gives innocence its real power, what gives experience its real power, is love especially unconditional love. That is sort of the grandest thing of all. That's the merging of these two poles of innocence and experience. Again, maybe a little facile, but shit, the book sells it. I'll take it. Well, and specifically, it's what is of value in innocence. Well said. That innocence on its own isn't isn't the powerful thing. It's what innocence lends people the capacity for which is often dulled by experience, but can be heightened by it. Very much so, yeah. 
And so now the thingy is what it used to be, but a wiser version of what it used to be. And all of these characters are wiser, having been through what they've been through. As the thingy fades away, our heroes prepare to part. Longshot bids a fond goodbye to Betty, saying he'll always be in her heart. And he and Nut resume their walk to New York. I I love that that's a recurring gag. But again, they're not alone because the sanitarium patients catch up. They want to come with him and... They, he asks, you know, how can they, are, are they allowed to? And they said, well, yeah, they had all voluntarily committed themselves. And it just hadn't really occurred to them that they could also just leave. Yeah, again, the idea of being bound by one's assumptions, it actually is pretty thematically consistent. I love it. And it also reflects, I think, a very fundamental aspect of what Longshot represents in the Mojoverse because he exists as something that upsets status quos and that leads people again to question their assumptions. He's, he's, his value is not as an effective revolutionary, that's really Shatterstar's game, but as a symbolic figure who, again, leads people to wonder whether there could be more. Very much so, yeah. He is the concept, in some ways, of hope. Uh, Not Hope Summers. I mean, obviously, she factors into this episode as well in our interview segment. But yeah, that's what Longshot's real power is. Like, the luck is cool and all, having two hearts, throwing knives, being acrobatic. But it's hope. And he joyfully expresses that hope and that optimism as the comic ends. In that case, join the parade. New York's just around the bend, and heaven only knows what miracles await us along the way. And off they go on that final page, arm in arm, with the now angelic version of the thingy watching over them, like from within the sunrise behind them. And it's just beautiful. It's this wonderful little self-contained story. And it is truly self-contained, because the story is never going to be referenced in continuity, nor, I think, does it need to be. Yeah, the next time we hear of Longshot, as far as chronologically when comics came out, he ended up back in the Mojoverse and uh, never mentions any of this. And that's fine. It's just a long-shot tale. It's a long-shot fable. So there you go. A comic that we came to quite enjoy that's only kind of an X-Men comic and doesn't really need to be. But I don't know. It feels right for a winter special. It feels right for a winter special that's coming out on New Year's Day, especially after having been through a hell of a year. And, you know, maybe we're going to have another hell of a year. Who can say? We've had some surprises for a number of years now. But there's always that hope, there's always that potential, there's always that option to face whatever comes next, arm in arm, with a great big smile. In a minute, we're going to be joined by writer Kieran Gillen to discuss his just-wrapped-up run on Immortal X-Men. But, like, just, just finished. Uh, The last issue, number 18, came out less than a week before this episode goes live. So if you haven't read that issue, or in general, if you haven't been following Immortal X-Men, and you don't want to know what's going to happen, skip forward about 50 minutes to the Corbeau Awards, because this interview contains hella spoilers. We'll put an actual timestamp in the notes to this issue. We don't have it yet as we record this, um, so that you know exactly where to go if you want to just head to the Corbeaus. But um, yeah, we're going to spoil the hell out of everything. Yes, this is your last chance. So uh, move on now if you want to. Okay, so if you're still here, let's talk about what happened previously on Immortal X-Men. 
The Quiet Council, the leaders of the mutant nation of Krakoa, consisted of a bunch of heroes and theoretically reformed villains. One of the latter category was Mr. Sinister, campy geneticist extraordinaire known for the red diamond on his forehead. Sept, it turned out, to his surprise and ours, that there were three other competing versions of Sinister, each with a different card suit icon on their foreheads. Upon learning this, Diamond Sinister used his Moira engine, a bunch of clones of Moira McTaggart that he could kill to reset the timeline when something went wrong, but then retain the knowledge from the last timeline and the next one. Uh, yeah, so he used that to create save points in the timeline so that he could manipulate the future to make sure he was the Sinister that came out on top. Those machinations led to the Red Diamond timeline, a millennium-long alternate future where Sinister tried to take over the universe and become a Dominion, a godlike AI outside of space-time. That didn't work, because one of the other Sinisters, he never found out which, had already become a Dominion, and the timeline was then reset back to the one we know and love. That timeline... Not great either, because soon afterwards, Krakoa was mostly destroyed by the anti-mutant organization Orcus, and almost all of the world's mutants were forced to leave Earth. They'd intended to go to the mutant settlement on Mars, but instead they ended up... In the White Hot Room, the metaphysical realm of the Phoenix Force. And now you know. And now, let's hear from Kieran Gillen himself. What the hell, Kieran? Oh, you'd better watch out. You might want to hide. Marauders are already lurking inside. Sinister is cloning this time. He's making a list. Checking it twice, gonna find out whose genes to splice. Sinister is cloning this time. He knows if you're a Summers, he knows if you're a Gray, he knows if you're an X-Men, and he wants your DNA. So you better watch out, you might wanna hide, marauders are already lurking inside, sinister is cloning this time. Alright, so we've, we've gotten through the long shot one shot, and now for something completely different. Um, actually, probably not completely different, because hopefully equally delightful. We have with us here writer and long, long, long time ex-scribe and friend of the show, Kieran Gillen. Kieran, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me back. It's been a while. It's been eight years, I think. Yeah. I didn't yeah, that think was about that. <laughs> right? It was episode, I think, 51 in, like, a New York Comic-Con hotel room with a bunch of other creators, which was great, but yes, we were all, we were all younger than now we are. All I remember about that episode is Marguerite Bennett drunk buying machetes. Well, there's, like, trust she sober buys machetes, too, so it's just genuinely a, a machete thing with Marguerite. Literally, when you're saying that, I've only just realized, you said eight years, and I went, like, ooh, eight years, then I felt back, well, like, my first work was 2008 at Marvel. That means I've been at Marvel for 15 years. So in other words, I am now out of the sliding time scale. So I've been at Marvel longer than the Marvel Universe has existed. And weirdly, you're still 29. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> 
that's the benefit of the sliding timeline. And if you're a Moppet, you stay a Moppet forever, except for the occasional fill-in artist that draws Leech with an earring. He can be a Moppet with an earring. Let him be a Glam Moppet, Miles. Glam Moppet Morlock. I love it. Glam Moppet is actually my um, my guttercore band. <laughs> uh, but Kieran, you have done over those 15 years in the sliding timeline so much stuff. I mean, for Marvel, just for the X line, you've written Sword, Generation Hope, a bunch of Uncanny X-Men, Immortal X-Men now, including AXE and Sins of Sinister. And like non-X-wise, I mean, we can't do the whole list, but I know some of my favorites are Beta Ray Bill God Hunter, Journey into Mystery, that old Young Avengers run, a bunch of Star Wars stuff that is technically Marvel. Like, you are a prolific... And that's, and that's just Marvel. That's, that's totally ignoring, I think, the stuff that at this point you're best known for, which are the creator-owned books. The Wicked Divine, Die. Once and Future is the other one, I think. If you're going to list three, it's probably those Yes, three. that one. Yeah, but we are so excited that you are doing not just X stuff these days uh, still, but like big, big X stuff. This episode is coming out mere days after your run of Immortal X-Men has completed. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Like, um, especially like I'm always playing the long game with almost everything. Like, so like we finally sort of explain what's going on at the end of issue 18. And so people will go, oh, that's what he's doing or not. Um, yeah, I'm just, I've been writing Xbox so long that when I was first writing this book, Abigail Brand was a goodie. <laughs> you know? That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Her journey has been a dark green, dark, dark green one, dark green yeah. journey. That's right. But her and base, it's like, what happened to them? It's like... <laughs> You talk about the long game, and I've actually got a question about that, because one of the common threads between your two big central exarchs is their villain. And I'm wondering how much of the current stuff with Sinister was in your head or even even germinating during the original Sinister as a system days. Oh, absolutely none of it. And so I was probably, there was a false memory. Uh, I was basically like Sinister. I was given a false memory by an, an, a higher Kieran Gillen to go and write, do that bit of a mission, but it was actually part of the big plan. Um, no, honestly, like, I was doing it as a sort of a closed a closed system, no pun intended. Um, and almost everything I did with Sinister is in response to uh, like what John did. You know, uh, it was that kind of, initially, uh, what, this is what Moira is. And then obviously the second thing was in response to um, what Jerry, I mean, I think Jerry's uh, stasis was first. And I was like, okay, there's two sinisters. What does that mean? Um, and then I, I think I, I think that's when I started thinking about Enigma. Let's say, oh my god, we've, we've, sorry, we've just gone straight in and said the name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I've completely failed to build up to the bigger spoilers. And then as I had the idea of having two more sinisters, then that became a whole new thing as well. So that kind of like I came in as a response to the uh, Krakoa era, and that's kind of the, that's my whole thing. Is when I came in as somebody who was a fan and was really enjoying what they were doing, and kind of stuck my oar in <laughs> and see what emerged from. But like. Thematically, it's a it's an interesting growth from where Sinister was, especially because um, the you know systemic stuff we were doing back then, especially because that Sinister was definitely he had, was his finger in the cosmic stuff more than the more than the uh, mutant stuff, which is really interesting. And I'm not like unpacking that, but it's kind of um, whoever who is each Sinister is one of those kind of open questions always. I think. And yeah, because at this point there are a number of Sinisters. Well, I guess I guess fewer than than there were, but. Of course, there's also there's also Mother Righteous, who I know I first became familiar with uh, largely in um, in Cy Spurrier's books. Mother Righteous, what's what's her genesis? Is that something you all worked on, or is that something that you just sort of you sort of picked up, or how did that work? That was Cy. I mean, like 
But I mean, to talk the whole Genesis, like I said, um, Jerry had the idea for stasis being this kind of, I mean, the core idea of stasis is uh, Mr. Sinister, but instead of doing uh, mutant stuff, he does uh, post-human stuff. You know, he does the, he does the Hulk. He does the, you know, it's a simple, that's a really simple core idea. And also he is trying to bring back his family. So of course, he's kind of the opposite of Sinister. And, like, and I, when I did that special, I dug heavily into that. Um, so those were the two who kind of originally, there was a mutant Sinister and um, Stasis. And then the kind of argument came, okay, if we're going to have four suits, what do the four suits, what do they represent? So it's like, well, say, so we end up picking and like, I'll end up really digging into the concept of what the sword is, you know, the sword is magic and all that. Uh, so what are, the, what are the areas of power in the Marvel Universe? And magic, you know, there's, I mean, magic and narrative stuff came up. I remember arguments over what is magic anyway, kind of stuff. Which is the theme that you dig fairly deeply into in, in towards the end of Immortal X-Men in particular. Yeah, that's because like, there is a bit like, you know, I mentioned this where they came from. So we basically, what are the sources of power? And then, okay, magic and cosmic are the two we're not really doing. And they're two classic Marvel ones. And they also give you demarked different ways of sinisters could be. Then, Sire, you know, Al took um, uh, Orbis right off with them, did a, did the, the intergalactic arms dealer. And Sai did, okay, let's do Mother Righteous, who is a very different sort of take on the, the kind of that, that approach. Um, uh, I forget exactly where the idea when the idea of her not being a man came from, I just really forget where that came from, but definitely the idea of, oh, and she's Rebecca came up very early because it's kind of, and that ties so beautifully in with what's happening with stasis and that kind of awful couple energy um, or not couple as the case may be or awful divorce, you know, there's a line where I just says eventually, it's like, you know, no, literally my ex is now God. That's the last thing I want. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, who, who would want that? Um, so that, that, I've literally forgot the question, Joe. What was it? It was uh, magic. Oh, yeah. And that me actually running with magic and what is magic anyway is absolutely me just picking up from where side left off. It's kind of like so much of the X office of work for high writing. Actually, you know, let's specifically say the X office because occasionally work for high writing is like you just take the book and run with it and kind of disappear and almost like not necessarily ignore, but kind of not forward. And for me, it was like, oh, no, we're, we're passing this ball between us. So it's a case that, you know, Sai is off doing uh, the Uncanny X, the uncanny Nightcrawler stuff and picking up the Destiny plot with, um, I call it the Destiny plot, because <laughs> that's just how much am I, you know, I know, I've got my priorities. Um, yeah. Whilst I, of course, it's like Mother Righteous. And they're kind of, okay, I'll, I'll grab Mother Righteous because she fits, because I want to do some of the White Hot Room. Um, so, like, she picked up there and it becomes about the um, liminal. It's just like, you imagine alternate timeline where I grabbed Orbis instead, because, you know, Phoenix is cosmic too. You know, like I'm, we're looking at the Phoenix for the uh, Mystic Prism, but you could look at for the Mutant Prism, and you could look at, at via the um, you know the Cosmic Prism instead. In fact, the, you could even arguably look at for the Posthuman Prism if you wanted to. Um, anyway, so so I was definitely going down a philosophical hole. So yeah, like if I'm going to have to write Mother Righteous, I'm going to have to write it seriously, and that involves lots of musing over the nature of magic, because especially because retroactively looking at what Sai was doing, you think, okay, wait, 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 Legion isn't magical. <laughs> Uh, and then it's like, oh no, how could, you know, obviously start, I, I joke, so I knew exactly what he was doing. But me kind of, especially at issue 18, when I'm going to show her cards, really, you know, there's a lot of captures in that issue. Because she's been that, cla- in some ways, she's been playing the classic sinister role. You know, the classic sinister role in the 90s is sinister hangs in the shadows, never explains anything. And Mother Righteous has kind of been that. So 18 is kind of just showing the hand of cards and then, you know, be set far to the cards. Because a sinister can never, ever, ever resist that reveal at the end. Yeah, yeah. It's all about the prestige. Yep. And I I love that. I love the idea that 
we get to explore so many different aspects of the Marvel Universe through the different Sinister timelines, the different timelines where each of the four Sinisters tries to become a Dominion, tries to get outside time and space and become a god. Like, what a good way to get the X-Men into all of the corners of the Marvel Universe. Like, from from the 70s, they've been doing stuff you wouldn't perhaps typically associate with mutants, like going to space and dealing with magic. And there's a Sinister for all of that. I, know, I love it. It's like, it's the life... Sorry, the funniest thing about Immortal Exodus for me, I came in really my actual aim was to kind of do stuff like issue one like really grounded political stuff with the real world and i've ended from the white hot room doing exodus <laughs> you know like that, that's a, a great statement of where the marvel universe takes you and what stories do to you uh yeah yeah it's the I, I think it's a really interesting filter to sort of look at stuff because if you're like obviously you see the stories i've written obviously i'm somebody who loves magic my x-men are pretty like pretty ground based i'm pretty x-men purist in a weird way uh, and the one exception to that is the Phoenix, because I think the Phoenix is a, is, a, is a such a fundamental part of the X mythos in terms of like um, all the for want of a better phrase the seventies cosmic trippiness, you know, and the Phoenix <laughs> is the embodiment of that kind of a whole strand of like like Iskanas esque. Uh, where did where do we possibly go? Um, and what what is the what is the fire, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So like, I was, I'm very happy to sort of gravitate back towards that, especially because the Phoenix was such a big part of my first sinister plot. That's kind of the thing that's haunting the back of my head. As in, like, um, Enigma's seen how this goes down. <laughs> it's like... So I want to I wanna go back to Sinister a little bit more, because I feel like your, your Sinister has very much become the canonical and the iconic Sinister in terms of the character's voice and presentation. And I'm wondering where where it came from. You know, you've, you've got the, the, the gag in Immortal, the, the you know, episodes of Drag Race writings of oscar wilde etc what what led you to take sinister in the, in the direction in which you took him like there's various strands of sinister and like and obviously i went back and i looked at various things so, okay what's interesting about him as in he is um he's camp in the traditional sontag mode as in he's unintentionally you know there's unintentionality to this camp sinister even when he's being very sinister in the, the classic 90s stories there's a fundamental campness to it he is a and I sort of lent it, oh no, he's a drag persona. Let's go with that. Especially if you, once you've got the Milligan uh, story where you've got, you've got his whole origin, which is essentially, he is less than a person. He has deliberately removed parts of himself to become this, um, this performance, really, as in a performance that doesn't feel pain. And that's where I think, you know, Stasis becomes interesting in terms of he's the opposite. Like, and just as bad in a different way. <laughs> um, so that's kind of where Sinister came from. I thought, okay, let's take that. Let's take... Uh, the, the performance of camp let's, and that all images there my original sinister i was taking a lot more 19th century stuff like specifically i was interested in um because i find the 19th century especially british imperialism an interesting filter to look at classic x issues when well, he's very 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 rooted heavily rooted in that yeah yeah it's that kind of like his origins it's one of the things like um oh, it's going to segue into nazi germany conversation but i think it's making sinister and focusing on sinister as nazi kind of distances him where in fact putting him in because He's in America in, in the World War II in the original stories and putting in the Brit- in the 19th century reminds us, oh no, eugenics are a British crime and American crime. That's the point of putting Sinister there in favour of putting him over there because it's much, you know, it's a much, you know what I mean? It's much easier to dismiss him as something they do rather than something we do. Um, and that's at least part of the why I sort of gravitated towards that. And of course, that wasn't on my mind as much back then because Sinister as... Because uh, the, the, the internet resources weren't the same way. So in other words, people talked less about Sinister being a Nazi back then because it, it was just a kind of story everyone had forgotten an, an issue with X-Force. Like, um, 
I was much more just going back to the original text and looking at what he did and looking at the 19th century and, you know, thinking about the 19th century, you know, like he met Darwin, you know, and I'm somebody who's really interested in this kind of stuff um, and digging into that stuff. And so, and weirdly, I sort of end up coming at it the other way because I did the uh, Origins 2 and I was interested in the idea of him being as World War One. <laughs> the idea of like the the end of the that period is a very different period to look at as well. I mean, like, you know, H.G. Wells was a eugenicist, you know, these kind of ideas. Um, you know, and he was also a socialist. And those kind of, like, the, all those kind of awfulness are interesting things to talk about. And especially because most villains have this classic relationship to the heroes in terms of they're, they're dark mirrors or they look at, at similar but different. I mean, Sinister works as an, oh no, your dreams may, do make you special, but your dreams are the only thing that's special about you. You know what I mean? As in, it's, it's, in some ways, he is the most, um, that's not true. He's not the most mutant supremacist of all, but he has actually believes that mutant is all that matters. And that's kind of where, of course, we've picked up on it. So, oh no, let's run with a, a mutant obsessed sinister to the ultimate degree. And by implication is there must be, maybe there's other sinisters who are equally obsessed with other stuff. And he's, and that's, that's what he's passionate about and what, that's what he's aimed at. He's in contrast to, to sort of the classic supervillain model where um, it's very, very personal. And for Sinister, it's entirely impersonal. It's he, he, every, everyone else, you know, is fundamentally interchangeable aside from their utility. It's definitely like, I did the whole thing about remix. I mean, obviously I feel quite bad when I changed the character because one of the things I did with Sinister was make sure it was a backdoor to bring him back. So was he bring him back into, yes, he was literally just tweaking his personality the first scene in my, ever wrote in Sinister. Um, in other words, you could tweak it back. So if people don't like this guy, it's okay, you can fix him. And like, <laughs> um, uh, so like, and there was definitely obviously the whole Scott obsession I still kept in my run, but that's much less around now. Basically, he's presumably turned it down in the mix. I've got the research I need. It's, it's really good old research I like. I mean, I've still got my Psycat and Professor Plod, uh, who are my two favourite characters. As in, I, I swear they're going li- to they're going to end up in the movies before anything else I write will. Um, but yeah, so it's still there as a theme, but it's not long with a big obsession because in some ways he got all the research he needed to do my first arc so he has to try something new because he knows where that leads um especially the big change in terms of me coming back was since i was doing 19th century that's not how people after me necessarily wrote you know we say he was my voice I mean, a slightly campier voice is the voice people picked up and what people generally did, they moved it much more to modern drag in that kind of in the drag performance aspect so he's a much more modern character like my made my, my character making jokes about elgar you know, well, Steve, you know, these are much more pop culture. Like, if Deadpool had a PhD, is the way Sinister tends to be written now, I think. Um, like, and I and I picked up and ran with that in that same way. Like, okay, this is where he is now, and he's tweaked his personality. We've seen how he does it. And it, just, that was on the back of my mind when I was doing Enigma, in terms of, like, that really, really cold personality that Sinister had originally. We could give, we could use that. Because it's one of the, if you actually trace Sinister's personality through all the, the comics, if you actually go read the sort of timeline, there's times when he's funnier. Like, I think that Gambit, when he goes back in time, this is always a very different personality now. It literally, yeah, there's something like, so it's almost like what's happening in various places. And that the idea of, like, okay, let's create a sort of uh, the ultimate cold AI sinister, in the case of Enigma, to play that role. Like, I mean, Orbis is a little bit of it. I think I kind of lean to Orbis as the unemotional one. But, like, Enigma's the cruel one. You know, he's, um, he's cruel enough to betray himself four times over. So, Kieran, you're talking about kind of the different eras of Sinister, and especially Sinister at the beginning. And what I find interesting is contrasting Enigma, you know, this this AI Sinister that he has kind of become. I mean, we'll see where that goes. With the way Stasis was portrayed, because I'm thinking about your Sinister 4 issue, the Before the Fall Sinister 4. 
where we really get into the background of Dr. Stasis and his relationship with Mother Righteous as he sees, you know, the face of his dead wife. And that brought me right back to that old, old adventures, further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries. That brought me back to Nathaniel Essex, Nathaniel Milbury, whatever, uh, as as this person, as this much more serious character, but still one who is very emotional. So I don't know. I mean, it almost seems like he was the most like the original, and yet all the stuff that made him him, that just disappears to become Enigma. So I guess my big question is, and maybe this is premature, but with Enigma, what's left? What's left when you remove literally all of that to just have the goal of becoming a Dominion? It's really interesting. I think those are really good questions. At least when I was um, when I was writing that special, part of me like uh, Joe's doing amazing things with um, uh, Stasis action villain. You know, there's lots of really and also like the really good set pieces, the cloning of the family repeatedly, these horrible ideas. And all I wanted to do is like, no, let's do a classic character portrait in my case. You know, let's do, let's do a character portrait of these people, and I'll present them as doom. You know, present them as doom lovers, and then by the end, you realize, oh no, no, they're they're awful, abusive people to each other. You know, just because they are driven by passion does not make them good. Um, so yeah, that Lee Stasis was like that's how I defined him separate for you know sinister. Sinister really doesn't care about anything. <laughs> you know, he's uh, you know he's whilst um, well Stasis is everything else that everyone you met in that kind of the classic uh, adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Um, He's that guy. He's the, he's a, an attempt to recreate who he was before with that level of complete over the top Byronic passion, uh, and not healthfully so. I must say, no joke aside, read those four issues. They are my Rosetta Stone for almost everything I've done with Sinister. Like, and it doesn't really bear. It's almost like me reading it and thinking about what it means. Like, there's, there's literally I'm referencing that issue that's about petals. Like, she liked rose petals in the uh, the Phoenix and the Phoenix. just like it's a real deep tight dive on those four issues. Um, so yeah, there was definitely kind of thinking what parts them be left and the bit the one i think to get most hints for enigma and i don't want to say much about him but the bit you want to see of enigma is the broken person whom who died uh who was left in the bedlam and died there because you saw what he was like you saw how cold and obsessional and the graphs that's the person who made enigma that's the person who did all this uh, and i'm saying like and now you i, mean, I don't want to say that but like I think if you go through the issues, you'll probably reread it. And that's kind of what I always write to be reread. And people go, okay, what was happening in that, that scene in the prison? And I don't want to say that yet, but like, I think we could probably have a pretty good guess. This is, this is, this tends to be the question that we, we drag writers in particular back to on the show. But when you're approaching those characters, characters who I think with the exception of hope for whom you were really the formulative writer have been around for a very long time, what were the previous runs, the influences, the previous writers who really shaped your versions of of that group? That's a really good question. I mean, like, I tried a series of character studies, at least the backbone of Immortal X-Men. And it, to us, it's often a bit less than a more so. More than some issues are much more character studies. And so some issues do almost nothing but character study, like the Exodus issue, for example. Um, and there's other issues where the character study is much more like just the filter. As in, here's the, here's, the, here's the character's voice we like, and we're going to have to use that to show the events. And they're normally based upon, oh my God, how much story do I have to get through? It's like, I didn't know I was going to do Judgment Day. It's like, I, I did laugh. One of the things I learned about this whole, uh, my time at Marvel this time is, I was very experienced at like writing tie-ins. And I, I was very, like, what I was good at is using a tie-in to drive my books. Al is the expert. Al does amazing stuff. But like, if you're doing the crossover, you can't do that. 
you because your plot has just been elevated to the crossover now i've got nothing for my book so oh, oh my god what am i going to do and especially because i originally planned like 12 issues before the end of the year and the reveal of xavier so like i've got 10 issues plus the sins of sinister plus not since sorry the judgment day plus the plot that needs to happen and that's so much shaped the shape of those issues in terms of what need okay this issue has to have this i need to have a i want in fact i probably wanted like one issue in uh the the black room project and one in the the 19th century and i thought oh no i'm gonna do them with one issue i've got to i've got no choice oh well and that'll be the mystique issue because i yeah yeah you know like you see how these things cascade and that means it's less the tight focus on mystique as personality as versus as mystique as visual thing um but to actually answer the question um i think I, in terms of my best character studies those are the ones i think actually you know go they're quite often characters without many really good iconic runs Exodus is the one you brought up, and that's that's the one I have highlighted in my notes because it's it's the character who this run actually made me interested in and curious about going back to, and there's just not very much. I mean, it's, in some ways, that for someone like Exodus, and to a lesser degree, Destiny. I mean, Destiny is one of the most important X Men characters of all time, with in the least stories. That was the thing that most interested me about, and trying to do a, a, a good take on her. Um, and so that was like, it's quite easy to go and read all the Exodus issues and all the uh, <laughs> uh, the. Uh, destiny issues because there's not many of them <laughs> you know you can generally go so like specifically Rexus, i was looking at, i don't mike carry mike carry in fact i would say obviously destiny is the claremont and all the classic stuff but like mike carry for exodus mike carry to be honest for xavier as well um in fact mike carry is probably the biggest single influence on my run full stop like what mike was doing in terms of legacy he i, I picked up his stuff for the black room project there's a direct line from the you know the x-men forever to the um uh the x-men legacy the black room stuff to my black room stuff with sinister and sure and also now we're back to x-men forever again which we're doing down the line you know the whole time is a circle um so that was a big one there let me fill up the characters um so when i storm i just like when i write the storm issue i'm thinking about um claremont really the classic genuinely the classic arc of claremont from her introduction all the way for life song like the, that whole journey uh, especially with the forge stuff so that was the kind of what was driving her then in terms of like the complete breakdown after, you know, the stabbing Callisto and all this kind of stuff. That's, that's, that's what I think has straightened me about Storm is that kind of, everyone thinks of the punk stage and everyone doesn't think, oh no, she was in extreme emotional distress and pissed off for two weeks before she, you know, she was in a bad place when she did that. And I've been there, you know, not that I've stabbed Callisto. Uh, she would beat me in a fight. We all know that. Um, You know, so that was that kind of stuff for my foundation. And then it was like, Al, you know, like, what's Al doing now? And that's often kind of like the characters who are more active in the present day. I kind of want to draw something in line with their present presentation. Uh, I said Xavier, the um, Xavier's a tight read of all the Claremont. Uh, also tight read of probably his bad stuff. Cause at least part of me with those issues was okay. Xavier's probably had a hard time. I tend to think Xavier's a bit like, imagine if Superman wasn't the lead character in the Superman comic. Like he would, he would, he would for the sake of the other characters being thrown into a, uh, be dragged for the mud you know what i mean because <laughs> there's a if he's starting as this paragon who's teaching us all the only way for that character is down <laughs> so like and i was like okay let's let's try to do let's this all happened but let's embrace the fact that this is creepy how would xavier justify it and that's kind of where the issue came from in terms of that um um really just trying to square all these things that xavier has done how would you do that to make sense and i must admit like it's xavier's gone a very different direction than i was thinking he would afterwards Giving him that degree of self-awareness, I think, really 
slotted in what had felt like a missing piece to me in, in Xavier. Like one of one of the things that I've talked about really always chafing against with him is his unquestioning self-righteousness. And having that be the face he presents rather than the true nature of 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 the man makes him more complex and more interesting and I think much, much more sympathetic than than the Xavier who is on you know what what he sees as a straight and narrow path. Yeah, Stefan's like I different I think one of the bits because I wrote most of that Xavier issue in terms of the monologue before the first issue was even out. Like that was in my notes. I basically sat down and wrote this entire like, okay, this is what Xavier wants. This is what Xavier's gonna say in issue twelve or as it turned out to be ten. And it was significantly longer. Like there's um talk about the self and that the self awareness was the thing. Like the thing, the thing, one reason why people hate Xavier is the hypocrisy of him. You know, he, he's a hypocrite, and at least that kind of well, he is. There's no way around that. He says things differently to than it's like, oh, don't use your powers to do this whilst he does this, and that kind of like, oh no, you should be afraid of me. And that, and that, I, I enjoy going back to the hunted, hated, condemned to be hated and feared. And Xavier thinks mutants should be feared on some level. He's got and that. That's the reason why he's different to Magneto. He thinks about he's like, no Magneto, you killed a town. You know when you, you know when you that stuff like that. Now. This, this is the stuff as people, um, you know what I mean? That the complication of the mutants, that it's not, I don't like saying mutant metaphor, it's about applicability is how I normally think about it. But the, 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 the tension in all the kind of the mutant stuff is that it's where it's interesting because you know, and Xavier only becomes more sympathetic if you push it more towards the actuality of like uh, post-unionism. And as a queer metaphor, as any other metaphor, he falls, he fails badly. <laughs> never found, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the tension, but that's why the X Men are interesting because it's not that simple. It's meant to be a story. Um, but yeah, so the, I mean, I say the self awareness, there was a bit where um, I cut this bit because there was no space. I wanted to talk about Legion. And he says, of course, I'm afraid of my own son for, the, for, for his potential, for my envy, because he, uh, he has been enormously destructive and allows himself to be so. Or has allowed himself to be so. I envy his potential mm. for destruction, and or like, and that he has, you know, all that. Um, of course, that is because I'm afraid of myself. Yes, uh, I discussed this with my therapist. Yes, I have a therapist, and that's just like that kind of like but the idea that you know, no, clearly he's afraid of save. He's afraid of Legion because Legion is like himself, but more so, and he has hair. Uh, you know, like <laughs> so that, much hair. Yeah, um, but you know what I mean. Like that kind of stuff interested me. As in, like, okay, let's 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 pitch for this guy. Um, so that's definitely like characters who who never got that much play are the ones I'm, I really try to give play for. And there's definitely characters I wish I'd done more for, uh, or had more space to do more for. But um, I quite like all of them. In fact, some of them were like amazing to get in terms of like Shaw. Shaw was like, was, if you read Shaw before or after his issue, like I get so much, like forcing to write him first person, forced me to internalize him and made me able to write him much better. And says, okay, this is how he sees it. And there's a couple of, there's some stuff with Shaw coming up. I'm really happy with because some some of it's like, yeah, they, I mean, like you can't argue with him. He's not wrong. He's just an asshole, <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he's evil. He, he has a a purity of motive and an honesty about that that's fun and somewhat. I mean, it's it's he's it's he's, he's it's it's the same reason that we love Sauron's. I don't want to cure cancer. I just want to turn people into dinosaurs. It's like you know who you are, and you're just going for it. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like the, the first, quite often when I'm writing characters first person, it's the line that I get and it's, oh no, that's them. And now I'll, because have you ever done impressions? The idea of impressions, you, I've, I've been told this, I can't do impressions or accents. You get a, a reset phrase. So you learn it to say one sentence and it resets your accent. And that's kind of do that with characters. You get the character in a line and then you can build everything like a crystal around them. And the shores, the line was, um, Yes, I funded the Sentinels. Uh, people ask, do I regret that? Yes, if I got in early, I could have got a few more percentages. You know, that kind of, that. Oh, no, that's that's sure. It's quite, and I, it's not like he's not being funny deliberately. I mean, that's kind of like, there's bits of that in, um, that, I'm talking about the, the Black Room stuff um, Carrie was doing. That's probably the stuff I was thinking about more, because that's probably one of Shaw's most heroic arcs. He's quite, but he's also compent- contemptible. There's a word I can't say, you know? like So that interested me. Um but yeah, like, they were all just fun to write for an issue. I mean, like, the Colossus one was a lot of fun. Writing this kind of... I li- I read all of the idiots afterwards to make, uh, to see if there's anything else I could mine for it in that way. The Colossus a- one is absolutely brutal. Like, that that issue just wrecked me. Oh, yeah. After seeing everything he'd been going through in X-Force, having that context, and then just actually getting into Piotr's head, just seeing the desperation. See, I didn't have that context because I read Immortal first. And even without that context, it is, first of all, remarkably followable, like, the, even even without, without the stuff. Like, that's something that actually I, I should commend throughout Immortal, because it was the first run that I sat down and read my way through a large portion of when I was going back to catch up. Um, and I was able to follow it remarkably well, given the number of intersections with other books and plot lines. Um, but yeah, even without, even without that, that context, the, the Pewter issue is, is, is really devastating. In a very real way, like, that's kind of my, like, in terms of accessibility, it's always my goal. Like, Immortal was the first bit of Dawn and X. Like, that was one reason I started with Sinister, and Sinister with the Moira engine, he knows everything. Therefore, through the dialogue, I can establish all the facts you need to know. Like, you know, like, I could just, I, hey, you're, if you're generally trying to jump aboard now, I'm going to try my hardest to explain everything. And all the way through, that's my goal. And especially because, like, this Flossus episode is such an awful existential horror. Imagine being trapped. As, it's like if your intrusive thoughts have taken over your life entirely. Like, that kind of, that, that's horrible. Like, the more you think about that, the more, like, the idea, oh, I'm nothing but this thing being written. And I'm aware of myself, but, like, that's, honestly, I get panicky to even thinking about that. Um, and it's much more like, we talk about mind, I mean, there's so much mind control on the X-Men for the history. But that's a, but the idea of, oh, I feel like I'm being written, is puts a different spin on being that it's not a it's not mind control it's reality control but it's but in terms of how it feels as an emotional thing it's deeply intrusive i am no longer the right i'm no longer the author of my own narrative and in some ways that makes you question when are we in control of our own narrative um but yeah like i was i really enjoyed that issue because a part of immortals the fun was because when i was planning it was i want to leave space to bring stuff in from everyone else's books as when so I, with the storm issue, I'm going to use the storm setup. I, you know, with the uh, Colossus issue, I'm going to bring this in. And ideally, I'll arrange because I knew that Colossus has got to vote at some point. He has to vote according to how he's being influenced. So that kind of these are like useful material I could then bring into play. Yeah. Um. And talking about the idea of being trapped in a narrative, I mean, that just becomes like that. That metaphor is is writ larger as we realize that Mother Righteous has been guiding the narrative of, in some ways, the entire Krakoan era. And I've been curious, like, how far back does that go? Because in that last issue of Immortal X-Men, she basically lays out, this happened because I needed it for this reason for my goal. This happened because I needed it for this reason for my goal. And so much of even the early stuff, certainly the early stuff from your run, but even some of the stuff before your run slots in. And I don't know how much of that was 
essentially you retconning for the story how much of it was intended but i guess i'm curious about that like how far back does your your influence on mother righteous being the big bad go well and i'm wondering as a corollary to that too how deliberately that is setting her up as a counterpoint to Mara, who is rewriting the narrative and rewriting the narrative and is is very much the author of the minutiae towards an end who's then bested at, at the game by mother righteous who's you know then bested at the game by enigma so this is like this is a this is one of the things like if it's if we're doing this interview in say five months time it'd be an easy thing to say like i think actually it's like explaining the card trick when part of the card trick still in play means they can't so you know what i mean so there's certainly the answer to the question uh you're asking miles is yes uh, as in some stuff has been you know picked up later and go okay we'll twist it and move it this way and some stuff have been cast and some stuff is planned right from the start um like so like explaining how the card trick is done is definitely premature for that i'm afraid but it's always an interesting option you know what i mean like and the comparison moria is really interesting especially like we had moria interacting with mother righteous in the ends of sinister sinister you had that bit where you know moira essentially you know murders <laughs> mother righteous in a, in a way to power us you know in that way no i'm your for this story not you not you who have been doing this for a thousand years and you know mother righteous does not remember that humiliation but at the same time it happened and i felt it was quite um especially like it was very important for me for moira to be the person to destroy the moira engine in that kind of the actual, even if it was mother righteous plot moira did the act and it's because um you know, Sinister, my, my thing about Sinister, he's somebody who objectifies people in that kind of very, he turns, he takes what the eyes people and he turns them into things. And the Moira engine is like this awful idea. You know, it's the idea you're nothing but this, every, you're nothing but a save point. Um, so Moira, despite everything that Moira's done, <laughs> had to be the person who A, knows it, B, acts upon it, um, which was hugely important for me. Um, and also it's like, and I think she's, I mean, obviously we're, we're quite early for like, uh, you know, Rise of the Powers of X coming but like that's one reason i had to come back to like moira's i've said in interviews moira's a big part of stuff like because as we head back towards the end of kakara moira's she was the star you know it narratively speaking that has to be i think um so yeah the all i mean like the i i hope i get some sympathy for more i mean i most i read read when i read conversations there's not much sympathy for moira right now uh, <laughs> and understandably so she's wearing people's skin uh, <laughs> that's a real way to lose friends at parties i find it's like more you knock it off with the skin thing what's wrong with you um the thing we like, just keep bringing up on the podcast over and over and gosh. over because because goddamn yeah it's like moira what are you doing <laughs> oh dear there's well there's there there's there you know the genocide heel turns and then there's doing the thing that's fathomably horrible yeah. That's, and somehow that's really what what sticks and what what damns the character. Yeah, it's so weird because it's like obviously all X Men have, have bad fashion periods, but Moira's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wearing her ex boyfriend's face. I mean, she's had a couple because there was evil, sexy um, Sh- Shadow King Moira too. Well, yeah, but she didn't wear anybody's face. She did not. She just wore extremely sewer inappropriate heels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will say one thing: like for me, I came in obviously. Almost like to understudy John, almost in that I'm very aware that if uh, in my head, a mortal X Men would uh, would be John's book if John was still in the X office, and obviously I did it in my own way, and like uh, which, there's no way to do it. But at the same time, as we head towards the end, there's been the whole office has been going, okay, what do we need to tie off? What is what is a, a like and what is a must, and kind of bringing all that stuff together and the and the uh, the threading it together and hopefully reaching some kind of like emotionally satisfying place is the job for me. 
So like uh, Miles, when you're asking in terms of like how much is planned, when you write this kind of story, it's much it is much more like juggling or like improvising and but like oh no, we set up this refrain, we need to answer this refrain. Like it's set up, but it's not necessarily you don't need it to be planned officially. But at the same time, most of my stuff is also planned. Like obviously, I never start. You know, I started issue one of Immortal with the uh, uh, with everything involving Destiny, and we'll be you know, and then X Men Forever will be shall we say probably starting with that scene i mean surprising nobody uh, but like um yeah it's a mixture between incredibly planned and also rift we're running a little bit low on time and i want to leave some space in for listener questions um because we have a bunch of them i will say i'm gonna i'm gonna condense them because several of them are are variations on the same things we also have a bunch of please tell kieran we loved his work so kieran they love your work we love your work also but that's very kind honestly i really hope people like the end because it's like I just like, I mean, John does an amazing start. To, I mean, if we do a crap end, it'll be so embarrassing. He'll never let us live it down. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of a judgmental dick and I like the end, so. Good. Obviously, we'll get to like, the end of the whole thing. Like, I tell you, like, the pa- RB's pages are astounding, by the way. They come in and they're, oh, I'm delighted. Anyway, questions. Okay, questions. Um, So, uh, that one store guy asks um, whether you can go into detail about how it came to be that you ended up writing two series about. Uh, each about a sect of immortal superpowered beings simultaneously and how they influenced each other. Yeah, the, the versions of immortality. I've got a type, haven't I? <laughs> you do a bit, yeah. Like, I'm just coming off the back of Wickdiv in that way as well. That, um, there was definitely, when I came to Eternals, what the way it influenced me mostly was see, in fact, was the reason why I came back to Marvel full stop was because seeing what John had done there. And that, oh, Marvel is a place where we're able to do interesting stuff with these characters right now. So when they asked me to do Eternals, like, I've never done a character based on a movie. Or, like, obviously, I've done characters based on a movie, but not one at the same time as a movie. Um, and so polish it up and try to basically make it as good as possible for people who are new coming to the book. But also, it became in conversation with Kokoro in that way. As in, well, I can't just do Kokoro, because, shall we say, there's bits of Kokoro which are just lifting uh, the Eternals thing. And in some ways, I just turn that into plot a bit. You know, the idea that, wait, 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 wait. And you get an interesting comparison between a civilization that's completely static and a civilization is just starting. Being immortal is a different thing from being eternal. That was the that's one of my main things. As an eternal is a much more a different concept. Eternal means unchanging, and with it, uh, and it came, and it became which made eternals, which made eternals about one of my classic themes of can we change? And the eternals, of course, program not to. And I talked earlier about um, that my horror at Colossus is fate in the idea of him being written. That's the Eternals. Like, how much of what is good about me is actually good or vile, but something that's just been coded into me by a celestial. That's the horror of it, I guess. So, I, for me, it's like, I kind of wanted to make the Eternals feel like a society. So, I, my main lifting was, you know, okay, let's, let's make political groups from scratch. All that kind of, like, world-building stuff. As in, let's make them feel like a society in a different way. I mean, because like, that's the, what I also did eventually in Immortal was, try to give as much focus as I can to the people who aren't on the Quiet Council. I became, for me, the in retrospect, you'll look at the um, the fall stuff for me. For me, it's about the normal people on Kokoa. That's why I took all 250,000 of them. The people will never get a book. They're mutants too. They're the mutants we should care, not we should care about others, but they're still mutants. They're, they're still our peers. We should, you know, they're as real as anybody. We're all as real as anybody. And that's at least part of it. Uh, but with Eternals, it's like, oh no, I've got 100 people. I'm going to list them all. <laughs> You know, just like here is a village of, of Eternals and they have a political organisation and I'm going to show you how they've jury rigged an election to an, uh, elect Thanos, you know? It was that kind of book. Um, and the idea that um, 
I kind of came from Die, which is about world building, and Eternals was about me putting the world building from stuff like Die and what I learned from reading Tolkien through the filter of an adult into a Marvel comic book. And it was about trying to turn Eternals was about trying to turn a disparate series of books into a an actual mythology. It's like turning continuity into mythology was the vibe. Um, so in other words, it's just a very different book for it because X Men is a rainforest a, a continent of rainforests like uh, john chose the way through it with eternals it's like there's it's much more of a smaller like uh nature you know a very weird bit of nature on an island <laughs> uh and i got to remix it all does that make sense it does 100 percent. yeah and you, you brought up die and actually die is is the thing that came up the most in questions and specifically readers who who want you to mix die in the x-men and i'm, I'm going to go with the version of this question that i like the most which is from jk jones 21 who asks which x-men would make for the messiest die party oh i hate these kind of questions my brain immediately freezes um anyone who's exes so let's go for okay let's go from the top i'm i would say stick cyclops in there stick emma in there Sick Jean in there. Sick Logan in there. This is quite a commercial book, actually. <laughs> okay, who else do you throw in there? Uh, Stick Shaw in there. Oh, no, Sick Namor in there. <laughs> Not Shaw. Namor's much more fun. And I would say you need that. And somebody who's just annoyed by all this. Um, I would stick Xavier in there. And the reason why you stick Xavier in isn't for the romantic messiness. It's for the, oh, another awful secret of Xavier will come out at some point during the mission. Because Die is all about the, the personal baggage and their personal shared history. And Xavier's the one which is like, the pers- you know, having a parental figure in there to, to kind of who you're all disappointed with somehow. You know, the, uh, I, just, I was very tempted to put Kitty in there, Kitty and Colossus instead of two of them. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I made the party A, throw Kitty and Colossus in there too, or Kate and Colossus rather. Uh, is it really weird? I, it's I really weird that, that I said that. Everyone's first name, except for Colossus, who's Pe- uh, called Colossus, not Peter. That's he's the only character I don't call by the actual name. Weird. We've talked about that on the show. Like certain characters, we gravitate toward code names. Certain characters, we dra- gravitate toward like civilian names. Well, and certain certain characters, it depends on the context and arc, too. True. The first ever excellent I was ever at, I said a uh, white queen instead of Emma Frost, and I just got a weird glance on the table, and I never felt more embarrassed. <laughs> you know, it's like I, my brain just farted, so I couldn't remember her name. Uh, but yeah, it, it definitely is. Occasionally, you just say their names, and it's Xavier. Never, it's always Xavier, not Charles or Chuck. <laughs> Only if you want to annoy him. <laughs> We've got probably time for one more question, and um, this is this is clearly from someone who who follows you on the social medias, Karen. This is Crooked Knight who asks. Now that you're moving on from Marvel, are there any terrible X puns that you wish you'd been able to work into print but didn't find a space for? I've still got some issues left. Like, never, never doubt me. Um, tell you what, the, the one which didn't quite land, which is quite frustrating, like, not, not in a bad way, as in the one which, because it, the artist took a different way, in Sins of Sinister, we had um, uh, the enormous awesome robot, the Mother Mold, which turned up. That was a, when the, on the script level, it was it was my idea. I wrote this, and then it, was, it landed in our script, and then it was t- taken a different way from the artist, which is great. But it was um, uh, Emma Frost with the the gem of Cytorak. Uh So like you know, what I mean? so she the, she became a red diamond. So Emma, the, so she's the red diamond in an enormous head of a of a, a sinister clone, essentially. So the idea of the, the triple there's like four levels of pun to get from Emma Frost diamond form, red diamond, red diamond in the head of a, a giant clone. You know that that's the most physical pun and painful, uh, and it's um, also, as the mother mold was is it ended up great, but that's the one that I was most happy with in terms of that's actually quite 
nonsense. <laughs> uh, but nonsense in the best superhero way, I felt. You know. Oh, and the bondage. That, that actually got that one in, though. Before we wrap up entirely, Kieran, where can folks who like your work find more of it and, and find you online? I am easy, most easily found. I've got a website, kierangillen.com, that links to most of my socials. I'm There's a Twitter account. I don't post using it. Uh, I'm on Blue Skies at Kieran Gillen. I'm Instagram as Kieran Gillen. I've got a button-down newsletter, um, and that's linked from my news link from my website. That is the best place to get me. I, I only release when I've got stuff out or something important to say. So, like, that depends whether Marvel is making me release 20 issues a month or not. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's the best place. Go to my website, find me there, and I'll uh, talk nonsense at you. Thank you again so much for making the time to join us and um, for the, this holiday special. We're looking forward to having you back on in many fewer than eight years. Hooray. And now... The 10th Annual Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence at Excellence. That's right, it is the most wonderful time of the year, the true reason for the season, the End of Year Corbeau Awards. For those of you unfamiliar with the Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence and Excellence, they are awards that we give um, entirely subjectively to our favorite X-books from the year, both new stuff and stuff that we've covered in the last year of podcasts. That's right, subjectively and arbitrarily. So if you disagree with us, well, that's entirely valid. Valid, but irrelevant, because we wield our power absolutely. Indeed we do. And as we have in past years, we will begin wielding it absolutely with the Modern Corbos, awards which we give to various people and comics and story bits and etc. that came out in the year 2023. As always, creators, if you happen to be listening to this and you win a Corbo and you would like a physical one, please let us know and we will make one and send it to you. We cannot guarantee that it will not be made of cardboard and spray-painted pasta, but that's part of its charm. We're professionals. Dignified professionals. And with that, the Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Award for Best Writer on an X title goes to... Kieran Gillen for Immortal X-Men and all of its various related tie-ins. The Best Line Artist Award goes to... Lee Garbett for Uncanny Spider-Man. I do love a sexy nightcrawler. The award for Best Colorist goes to... Marcello Maiolo for the Jean Grey miniseries. The Best Ongoing Series Award goes to, and boy, was this a hard one. X-Men Red by Al Ewing, Stefano Caselli, and Dilder Echinar. The Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Award for Best Miniseries goes to... Children of the Vault by Denise Camp and Luca Maresca. The Best Single Issue Award goes to... X-Men Blue Origins by Cy Spurrier, Wilson Santos, and Marcus Toe. The award for the best X-Book that wasn't technically an X-Book goes to... The Revenge of the Brood Arc of Captain Marvel by Kelly Thompson and Sergio Fernandez Davila. The Hope You Survive the Experience Award for Best New Creator in the X-Universe goes to... Iman Valani, co-writer of Ms. Marvel, The New Mutant, who, not coincidentally, plays Ms. Marvel in the MCU. The Gone Too Soon Award for a series we really wish had gotten to be an ongoing goes to... Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain, by Tini Howard and Vasco Georgiev. The Best Non-X Marvel Comic Award goes to, and this was also a hard one... Immortal Thor by Al Ewing and Martin Cocciolo. 
The Cyclops Has a Good Day Award for making Scott Summers' life slightly less awful goes to... Scott Summers rescuing a bunch of adorable puppies during the Dark Web event! It was really cute. Also on the Summers front, the modern ABD Award for why Havoc still hasn't finished his dissertation in 2023 goes to... Busy getting his costume ripped up all sexy-like and then becoming a zombie, both in the service of his kinda girlfriend, Madeline Pryor, the Goblin Queen. Sorry, Alex. The About Damn Time Award goes to... Once again, X-Men Blue Origins for Nightcrawler's amazingly, perfectly updated parentage. It is, as we said, About Damn Time. And the Irene Adler Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Series goes to two winners this time. Right, because they're technically two halves of the same series. We've got Fall of the House of X by Jerry Dugan and Lucas Vernick, and Rise of the Powers of X by Karen Gillan and R.B. Silva. I just want to know what happens. Good luck with that. So there you have it, our awards for modern comics, those that came out this year. But what of the comics we have covered in the past year? What of the classic Corbos? The classic Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo Award for Buried Treasure goes to... A comic you may have in your immediate memory, the Longshot One-Shot that we just covered by Dematis, Zuli, Williamson, and Summers. The Exploding Colossal Man Award for a standout comics run goes to... John Francis Moore and Adam Polina's Road Trip Era of X-Force. I miss it already. The Summer Baby Award for Perfect Character Who Has Bizarrely Never Returned goes to... Dr. Absinthia Von Mort of Transylvania's Castle Absinth. Oh, Jennifer Murder. Dr. Jennifer Murder. The Screaming Out of the Gate Award for Strongest Start to a Run goes to... X-Men number 70 by Joe Kelly and Carlos Pacheco. The Gordian Not Shabari Award for Unnecessarily Complicated Continuity goes to... Larry Hama's run of Generation X for making M and Penance's origin stories even more complicated than they already were. The Cosmic Whisper Award for Purplest Prose goes to... Husk's Diary in Generation X number 34. The Muppet Award for ending with an explosion or cannibalism goes to... Howard Mackey's X-Factor, which had begun a bold new direction just as it... The Happily Ever After Award for Well-Earned Bliss goes to... Brian Braddock and Megan Pusinu for finally getting married and getting to relax for a while. The... You really did that award goes to X-Men Unlimited number 21's Hell to Pay. God damn it. Sorry, Jay. The That Foreshadowing's a Little on the Nose award goes to Paradox the Angry Danger Room from Generation X number 47. And the classic ABD award for why Havoc still hadn't finished his dissertation as of 1998 goes to... 
becoming a fake supervillain for a while, and then getting suddenly blown up in an airplane and ending up in an alternate universe. The Future Past Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Series Coverage goes to... The Twelve in all its messy, messy glory. Oh, is that where continuity goes to die, Jay? Or where it goes to truly live? And finally, spanning the classic and modern Corbos, a final category. The Super Doctor Astronaut Pure Corbo Award for the best listeners of any podcast ever, which goes to... You! You, all of you, the person listening to this right now, every single one of you, you're just the goddamn best. You have been for ten years running now. How did you do that? Still, nice track record. Don't mess it up. So, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and this is the moment when we usually stop to thank one or two specific Patreon supporters. I want to instead... As, as we wrap up this year, thank everyone current and past who supported us or continues to support us on Patreon. You are the folks who make this possible. You are the folks who let us keep it ad-free and answerable to only our listeners. And we are so glad and so grateful to be working for and with you. And we want to thank some other folks as well here at the end of one year and the start of a new one. First and foremost... Matt Hunter, our producer and editor for over six damn years. Matt is responsible for making this podcast sound significantly better than it would if it was just the two of us talking into a mic and turning it into an MP3. Seriously, Matt does so much work to make this podcast sound as good as it does, and we are so grateful. He has also put up with our nonsense for over half of the show's life, and we are so, so grateful for that. Also? Really great guy. If you're ever hanging out with Matt Hunter, like if he's just around, say hi. He's really cool. We recommend it. He makes good music, too. Mm-hmm. Moon-talk.bandcamp.com, as you may have heard in our outros. And we also wanted to thank Dylan Higgins, who edited and produced the show for two months while Matt was on leave. Dylan was such a pleasure to work with and is so good at what he does. The show's a bit of an odd one production-wise, and Dylan slotted in like he'd always been part of it. Thanks, dude. Thanks and thanks and thanks and thanks go to Al Kennedy, who subbed in for me while I was on parental leave earlier this year, who kept the podcast going and who added a voice that I think we're all really glad to have had as part of the show. Yes, Al, you were an invaluable part of this show. And then you came back and we talked about some Jim Mahfood stuff and Dr. Absinthia Von Mort. And um, I hope you'll be back again before too very long. Thanks also to our guest for this episode, Kieran Gillen. It was such a blast talking to you, getting the dirt on uh, various sinister machinations and various immortal items. But thanks also for A, being a cool dude, and B, writing some of the best comics Marvel and other companies have seen in ages. We didn't even get to talk about Dr. Aphra, the Star Wars spinoff. But you have been such an invaluable voice in Marvel. You continue to be as the Krakoan era wraps up. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks for being in the world. If you listen to the outro and to the closing credits, you may have noticed a new name in them this year. That is Max Carlton, who has been amazing in helping us continue to plumb the weird depths of Marvel continuity and find new fodder for cold opens. Thank you so much, Max. Thank you as well for two people that you, uh, I think, may have heard in Hawk Talk briefly ages ago, but for the most part don't hear on this show. 
That being our incredible partners, Jay's wife, T, and my wife, Anna. As you might imagine, this show takes uh, quite a bit of time to create, to make happen. And they have been so incredibly supportive for years and years and years now. And we think it's really important to make it clear that this show also would not be able to exist were it not for their support. While we're on on family, I want to thank my brand new production assistant, whose name is is not going to be in public record for the time being, but who remains absolutely terrible at their job, but exceedingly cute. Well done, kid. And thanks to all of our listeners, patron or not, whether you just started with this episode, weird place to start, or have been there for the last freaking almost decade— It's so amazing to put our nonsense X-Men ramblings out into the world and to have people who want to listen to it. And in fact, who want to listen to it more than once, even hundreds of times sometimes. And who not only listen, but who reply, who start conversations, who start their own podcasts. The number of creators really across multiple formats, across media, We've been in contact with because of this show and the number of other shows who've gotten in touch with us to let us know that we were part of their genesis is really humbling and really phenomenal. And we're so, so glad and grateful to be part of that ecosystem. For real, getting like genuinely emotional here as we talk about this. So thank you. Thank you for being here. We hope you will stay with us as we continue to explore the wild and wacky world of X-Men because yeah, there's there's some really wild stuff coming up. We haven't even gotten to some of the uh, the wackiest. And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, as we dive into 2024 proper, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and Colossus head to Russia. In X-Men Liberators. That's right. We're just going to actually post somebody else's podcast as our as our winter special. Some some football podcast or something.